with our cute um, Mr. Rogers theme going on here. Love Mr. Rogers. And we are just talking about how we can take Jesus seriously when it comes to what he calls the greatest commandments, to love God and to love our neighbor as ourself. And so we've been talking about this in a number of ways. We talked about what it looks like just to move towards the neighbors that God's calling you to. Last week, Pastor Ashish talked about looking for people of peace, or these people who we've talked about this at Mill City for a long time. We call people of peace the people that seems like God's prepared them to be open to you. They might even want to serve you. They listen to you. They share with you. Who are those people of peace in your life? And so we're going to continue on doing that. And as we've been in this series, on Instagram and Facebook, personally, I've been sharing tips for whoever happens to scroll on by of how to love your neighbors that I've learned over the years. And I'm open to learning a lot more. And so you can follow those. But I have a tip for you today. Not yet out on the internet. Here it is. First tip. That's not before it, before it goes live, okay? Join the next door group for your neighborhood. Who is on next door for their neighborhood? Okay. Next door is like an online, it's like Facebook, but only for people who live near you. I'm hearing some, some, some banter about this. Um, I, I have a couple of reasons I want to encourage you to join Nextdoor. It does help you know what's going on in your neighborhood. And also, humans are hilarious. <laughs> Not always trying to be hilarious, but they're so funny. And so uh, you will get a pulse on what's going on in your neighborhood if you join in your next door neighborhood, which I bet was a little bit of the, let me tell you, that's an interesting place to be sometimes, and it sure is. Let me give you just a little glimpse into the Waite Park neighborhood of just the last couple of weeks, some of the posts of what's been going on in our neighborhood uh, that has been helpful and also comic relief, okay? So, for example, we have had some heartwarming stories of people finding each other's pets. Wonderful. Uh, we have had some people who found keys that have been lost, sharing veggies. You have to love that. Somebody is trying very hard to find a fourth person for their pickleball doubles. <laughs> so you can find that on Wait Park. Someone's trying to rehome this bearded dragon. I've got a picture of this bearded dragon on the, sc on the screen. Someone's trying to rehome him. And then I've also got a picture on the screen. Let me describe what, what it said. I would like to formally welcome a new neighbor to Wait Park. On Johnson Street, just north of 29th, is the most glorious giant skeleton I've ever seen. I adore him. It's not Halloween. I think this is an all-year skeleton. And so that's a picture of him. And then for some reason, there is a lot of warnings about feral cats in our neighborhood. Who knows? So you can see, I mean, that's a great way to get a pulse on what's going on in the neighborhood, isn't it? And as we've been talking about this idea of loving our neighbors, one of the things we have not yet mentioned and not yet explored is the reality that we often don't get along with our neighbors. Right? We have to just be honest about that. Unfortunately, this is also very apparent on the Nextdoor app. Here are some direct quotes from this last week. I put some emojis on the screen that represent, I'd, we didn't need to put any actual cusses, just some emojis work. Uh, so I'll just give you some exact quotes. Stop coming into my yard and stealing my rhubarb. I mean it, and don't touch my lilacs either. People are parking in front of my driveway, in front of my garage, and they will be towed and criminally, criminally accused of trespassing. Warning, there are cameras everywhere. My neighbors have been playing music in their yard, and it's not the noise that bothers me. It's just that their taste in music is incredibly depressing. <laughs> this is like, quote, please stop. Direct quote, okay. Of course, these are the lighter examples. Um, it, it, it's worth mentioning that um, on places like Nextdoor and other places online, there's often a lot out worse, isn't there? 
a lot more things that are, are communicated that are hateful speech towards people, uh, different groups of people, before the moderators take things down. They're usually pretty quick in our neighborhood. Um, but before of that, many of us see terrible racial slurs or ways that people are degrading folks that are in poverty, things like that. And unfortunately, I think we can all agree, we live in a world where that's become common. And not just online, unfortunately. And so as Jesus followers, the encouraging thing is, is that we have a countercultural opportunity to be peacemakers and bridge builders in a world full of conflict and burned bridges. We have the opportunity, counterculturally, to be peacemakers and bridge builders in a world full of conflict and burned bridges. This is the invitation that we have when we talk about loving our neighbors. We can let love overcome the barriers and follow Jesus' example to love the least of these as though they were the greatest. And we can let ourselves respond to maybe even a harsh enemy with deep compassion and love. And we see Jesus modeling that throughout the Gospels or the stories about Jesus' life. We see him modeling it all over the place. But we've been looking at just these two chapters of Luke's Gospel. And where we see here is this, it seems like Jesus is talking a lot in just two chapters about what it looks like to truly love our neighbors. And it culminates with the story of the Good Samaritan, the familiar story where Jesus is asked a pointed question, who is my neighbor? And in a few weeks, Pastor Donna is going to wrap up the series talking about that exact passage. But before we even get to the story of the Good Samaritan, I want you to ask the question, who is my neighbor? And how is Jesus responding in Luke 9 here at the end of the chapter? I see three different ways, actually, that Jesus responds, three categories of people, through three kind of scenes that we're going to unpack together. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be looking at Luke 9, 43 is where we're going to start. And so if you have a Bible, we're going to look at that. And in this passage, we see when we say, who is our neighbors, Jesus answers this question. And the question of who, of our neighbor, who is our neighbor is, who is Jesus calling us to love in his name? That's at the core of the question who is my neighbor, because that's connected to this idea of the greatest commandment. And so we'll start with in, in Luke 9, and I'll start in verse 43. Uh, Jesus has been healing people. He's been traveling and doing amazing things. And here's the reaction starting in verse 43. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them. So they did not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. An argument started among the disciples as to which one of them would be the greatest. Let's pause right here. Okay, Jesus has just tried to explain that he is sacrificially going to give up his life and go to the cross. He's going to give his life up for the world that does not deserve his reckless love. And as he explains this, it's clear the disciples don't get it. They're just not quite understanding. And the next thing Jesus knows, they're arguing, arguing about what? Who's better than who? Right? Who's the greatest? It's kind of a stark contrast, isn't it? Jesus says, I'm going to lay down my life. Do you understand? The disciples say, yes, we need to figure out who's best. Jesus is like, no. That's... Pretty frustrating, right? If you were Jesus, wouldn't that be so frustrating? In a culture, in that culture at that time, it was common for people to discuss their kind of uh, hierarchy and, and, and which status people had. It's not that different in our culture. I would suggest it's maybe sometimes a little more veiled and a little more indirect in our culture. But that wouldn't have been that strange. But then Jesus is going to respond to that. So clearly they're missing the point, And Jesus responds in verse 47. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. 
And then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is the least among you who is the greatest. So Jesus has just bewildered the disciples with his last explanation. So I think he's thinking, this time I need an object lesson. Because they're clearly not getting it. And so he looks around to find something really practical. And he says, I'm going to pick somebody, somebody who is perceived as having the least value. Perceived as having the least value. And in first century culture, a little child would have been a good example of that. Now, this might be difficult for us to get our heads around because in dominant cultures in North America, we place a lot more value on children. And so maybe to just help us understand why would Jesus choose this specific object lesson, we might want to think about how uh, they saw children through the lens of economics, right? Children couldn't work at least very hard, right? They didn't make a lot of money, but they cost money. Some people are like, we know they cost money. (laughs) They cost money. They take, you know, you have to clothe them and you have to feed them. And so perhaps think about people in our culture who we might see as economically insignificant. People who, maybe that's a more helpful comparison, people who tend, we tend to think they don't contribute a lot financially or maybe intellectually. The idea of who we may see as the least is different for different people, isn't it? And so we maybe just need to think about that, reflect on that a little bit. Jesus says, for it is the one who is the least among you all who is the greatest. So what if we ask the question, To consider our neighbors, who among me is the least of these? Who among me is the least of these? Maybe if we need to pause for a minute, because when I think of among, it means the people you're actually around. Who in your life is amongst the least of these? And maybe I'll just give some examples. Maybe it's people that uh, you view as taking a lot but not contributing a lot. Maybe it's, it's somebody that, let's just get really practical, that person who's really awkward or really annoying, right? at work or on your block or at church. And some of us have this visceral reaction, don't we, towards being stuck in an awkward situation or being in in an experience where someone's being annoying or we're we're worried about being annoying, right? I was talking to a neighbor the other day, and maybe a better way to say it is she was talking at me, and it was like a stream of consciousness experience. I'm sure I've done that to somebody. Anyway, somewhere in the litany of words, I hear her say, and I avoid that neighbor over there because when you start talking to him, he'll just keep on talking and he never stops. <laughs> I thought, well, okay. So who is it that we need to consider the least among you and among me? Because Jesus invites us to see them as he does, as the greatest in his eyes. Not just what they can offer or what they can bring or how comfortable they make us feel. Jesus responds to the disciples here. They're having this infighting amongst each other. And so if you ask the question, who is their neighbor? Clearly it's the least of these, those among them. But also, they're supposed to see the people closest to them as their neighbor. That's who they're supposed to love. They're friends. Jesus is confronting their tendency to see themselves as better than each other. Isn't it interesting how we tend to compete with the people we're closest to sometimes? And so in a lot of ways, Jesus is inviting them to say, you can't skip over your friends and your family towards these other people, the people right around you, being patient with them and loving with them. These are the people you're supposed to love. They're supposed to be brothers, those guys, right? Not competitors. So the first group of people we see in this story that we're supposed to love in the name of Jesus are our friends. Even and perhaps especially those friends we may see as the least of these. Who are those in our lives? And so the story continues in verse 49. Uh, Another group who might be considered neighbors is brought up pretty distinctly here. And so when we pick it up in the story, there's just a couple verses. Master, said John, 
we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. John is considered one of Jesus' closest friends. He spent arguably more time with Jesus at this point than anybody else. And notice his language. We tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Jesus' response, right? For whoever is not against you is for you. John slips into something that I think many of us slip into without even realizing, and it's this idea of the us and the them, isn't it? It's so easy to do. And so even this disciple that's so close to Jesus, he slips into that. And here, this man that they're talking about, he's healing people in the name of Jesus, not in the name of some other rabbi, not in that guy's own name, not in the name of uh, some other god. He's calling on the name of Jesus. But John's gut reaction is, but he's not one of us. Who is my neighbor? Jesus shows it's your friends, right, the closest to you, even the least of these. But it's also those who should be your friends, but you've decided that they're your enemies. We call that frenemies. That's a word, frenemies. Frenemies is a concept, all right? The people that should be with you and you see them as not against you, but you've decided that they're against you, frenemies, all right? Look it up. Who is your neighbor, your friends and your frenemies? And it begs this question of all of us, who have I assumed is against me? Who have I assumed is against me? Because of our us and them tendencies, we do this amongst Jesus followers, don't we? We do it all the time. There's this right way and this wrong way to be a, a Jesus follower. This is what we hear, right? And somehow, clearly, amongst the billions of Christians in the last 2,000 years, we figured out how to do it right. I'm being very sarcastic. Please don't misunderstand my tone. <laughs> Jesus says, for whoever is not against you is for you. And I'd be willing to bet you that almost everybody in this room has a conflict with someone or some group of people who are claiming to be Jesus followers as well, right? What if we were willing to humble ourselves and, and to assume that we can't know the hearts of other people, right? We can't know if they're having a sincere faith in Jesus or not. Could we even, get this, come to the place of having peace in our hearts that we might not have it all accurate ourselves? And even if we are correct in a situation, the call from Jesus is to love them as neighbors regardless. We'll continue to see that. Sometimes, and this is, this is just real talk, sometimes the difference of opinion feels really personal, doesn't it? Sometimes it feels hurtful. Sometimes that difference of opinion can feel very much like it's, it is pointed at you. And sometimes the, truth is, sometimes the truth is there are people that are against you, so I don't want to minimize that. But before we assume, as John did, it's worth asking, who have you assumed is against you, and are you sure that that's the case? Uh, some of you might know that this week there was a, a lot of chatter online from those who disagree with women leading as pastors. That, of course, feels personal to me. And the other four women pastors at our church, and the many others that I'm friends with. And I'm not going to, to say that it's easy to disagree with something that's so core to my life calling. Of course, of course it is. But let me tell you something. I have friends, people who I would call friends, who hold the view that women shouldn't be pastors. And while that means our friendship can only go some, so deep in some ways, I don't believe that those friends are against me as a person. They want what's best for me, even though we disagree. And I know because I'm friends with them that they sincerely love Jesus. I know that they do. And I have been somebody who has deeply studied scripture, and I believe that God empowers women to lead in all roles, not in spite of scripture, but because of it. 
But the truth is, is that that's not the conclusion everybody that I love comes to. Can that be okay? Because maybe the most important thing is our common passion to help people know the freedom that comes in a relationship with Jesus. The most important thing is that we recognize that if we keep Jesus at the center, we can disagree about things that are not essential and keep moving towards that mission. And I see them doing that, and I hope that they see me doing that, and I believe that they do. So when it comes to this, the friends that we may think are enemies are frenemies. (laughs) Jesus makes it clear they may not actually be against you. And regardless, even if they are, they are your neighbors, those who you are called to love in Jesus' name. Okay, so we've got friends. Frenemies. Somebody's still confused about frenemies. Sorry, we're moving on. The final scene in our story today shows just how far Jesus is willing to go with this whole loving your neighbor thing. Okay, so let's read this last verse, last few verses, starting in verse 51. As the time approached for him, for Jesus, to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? We'll just pause there for a minute. (laughs) But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went on to another village. Okay, so these things all being so close together, just think about that for a minute. Interesting. Jesus has his sights set on Jerusalem, it says. That means he's, he's ready to go to the cross. He's moving towards what he knows is going to be the cross in Jerusalem. And to, to, he's going to give up his life for the whole world. And you can see here, look at this map. There's only one real way for them to get from where they are down to Jerusalem. And that's to go through a little area called Samaria where there are, who? Yes, Samaritans. And that's the only way to get there. Now, there is just some real bad blood between these two groups of people, the the Hebrew community, the Jewish community, and the Samaritans. And we can't get into all that today, but even the fact that Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem, it it hooks them. It brings up something in in their past that really, really bothers them. So when you look at this map, you see there's no real way to go around or under or over at that time. You have to go through. They hear that the Samaritans are not pumped about Jesus coming through, and the disciples are understandably defensive. They're defensive of Jesus. And so they take a play, a play out of the playbook of Elijah in First and Second Kings in the Old Testament, and they say, maybe we can call down fire from heaven to destroy the Samaritans for not wanting you to stop by. This is one of the reasons that Jesus gives James and John the nicknames Sons of Thunder. That's the nicknames that they were given. And we aren't told exactly what Jesus says to them, but he turned and rebuked them, it says. Now, before we assume that Jesus is being unnecessarily harsh. I mean, let's just review what has happened here. These two men, James and John, Jesus has been investing in them. He's been showing them his reckless, extravagant love and teaching about what it looks like to show mercy. He just talked about the least of these. They have been up close. They've been watching every move, but then they get a little bit defensive and they decide to call down fire to destroy a whole town. Jesus is not who he had been showing himself to be if he did not turn and rebuke them in this, right? They're way off base. They're way out of line. Just like a parent who loves their child, they're not going to let that slide, right? We don't know what Jesus said to them. I've got some ideas, but we don't know. If it were me, it would include, have you not been paying attention for the last three years? 
think about this encounter, I was thinking about it, and I just thought, sometimes Jesus leads us right through what feels like enemy territory, because that's the only way we will actually get how serious he is about this loving your enemies thing. And we get led right through it, don't we? Who are our neighbors? Okay, our friends, our frenemies, and our full-on enemies. All of them. That's who Jesus calls us to love in his name. As you think about these groups of people, and you think about James and John, the sons of thunder, Jesus rebuked them, it says, or corrected them, right? Because he loved them. I hope you can see that. He loved them. He wanted so much more for them. Even though they were a bit dense in this story, right? Jesus changed their lives. We know the rest of the story for those guys. The sons of thunder go on to be loving and compassionate men. Not perfect. But we know that. We know that James is the first disciple to be martyred, to give up his life, to choose nonviolence, just like Jesus did. And then John, well, he's known as the apostle of love. Maybe you've heard that before. He writes about love more than anyone else in the New Testament, arguably. And and one of his quotes that I just love is from 1 John 4. Dear friends, since God so loved us, think about him with Jesus in this time. Since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. And he had not seen God the Father, but he had experienced God through Jesus, hadn't he? And the forgiveness and the grace and the patience. Um, earlier I said Father's Day is a complicated day for a lot of people. It is for me. Uh, my dad passed away when I was a teenager. And, and he was not a perfect man. No, no earthly dads are, obviously. So you're off the hook, dads. You don't have to be perfect. Um, but I do remember my dad as a compassionate and loving man, like the kind of guy that wasn't afraid to cry and share his emotions kind of guy. But I know that's not what my dad experienced from his dad. I know that's not what he experienced. And because of that, My dad struggled with anger for a good part of his life. He was just kind of held captive by anger for a long time. But when my brother and I were little, he chose to get some counseling and some support. And God transformed his life from his son of thunder days to who I experienced him at. Somebody who had to apologize sometimes for losing his temper like anybody else. But when I think about my dad, angry is not how I remember him. Because he responded to the loving correction and rebuke of Jesus in his life. Can you imagine how different my life, I can't even imagine how different my life would have been. My dad stopped the cycle in our family and didn't, I didn't experience from him what he experienced from his dad. And so this is a hard thing, I think, to ask ourselves. Would we be willing to receive a loving rebuke from Jesus? (laughs) Even ask what that might be from Jesus in our lives. Would we ask Jesus what needs to be corrected in our lives and then be ready to be transformed? Is that something we'd be willing to do? Because I think Jesus believes in us more than we believe in ourselves. Sometimes we think we can't change. I'm always going to struggle with this. This is always going to be an issue. But I believe that we can with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. I've seen it. Perhaps there's a neighbor in your life or a group of people in your life who Jesus might have a loving word of rebuke for you about how things are going there. Perhaps if you listened, you would hear Jesus' Spirit whisper to yours, that neighbor Or that family member that you struggle to love is made in my image. I can help you love them. Would you consider asking me to help you? Perhaps Jesus needs to give you a pep talk. Some of you know I get a lot of pep talks from Jesus. 
Jesus is always giving me pep talks because he knows, he knows me and he loves me. That's my belief. And so a pep talk I've heard in this is, Steph, why are you judging that person before you've even gotten to know them? Why are you assuming things about this person? What bias, Steph, I love you, what bias are you bringing into this about this person because of their ethnicity or their background or their age? Jesus says to me all the time, do you think my love is enough? If you do, then I can show you how to do this. I can show you how to love even the hardest people to love. And I just feel like Jesus always says to me with love, stop doubting the power of my love and receive it so it can overflow and that's why you can love people. Will we listen to the loving correction or rebuke of Jesus' spirit that can transform our lives into lives of love? Jesus can give us what it takes to love our neighbors, our friends, our frenemies, and our full-on enemies, of course. So here's the summary of these questions I asked you along the way. The first one, who among me is the least of these, right? For it is the one who is the least among you that is the greatest, Jesus says. Second, who have I assumed is against me? Because Jesus says, for whoever is not against you is for you. And then finally, will we listen to the loving correction of Jesus' spirit that can transform our lives into lives of love? Will we do that? And I'll just be honest, on bad days, I have trouble believing that Jesus' love can really transform me and the world around me. I figure this person will just always be hard to love. I'll just never get along with them, and I just, I'm always going to struggle with this. But we can be changed. We can believe it because we've actually seen it. I know you have. I know you've seen sworn enemies lay down their swords and become siblings. I know you've seen relationships that seemed completely over experience reconciliation. Tomorrow, as we celebrate this last enslaved Americans learning they were free 158 years ago, not that long ago, so much has happened since then, and so much more is needed. But do we believe that Jesus can give us the strength to overcome? The barriers can be torn down. The bridges can be repaired. The hardest of hearts can be softened. Yeah, there's a lot of brokenness. I don't want to make light of that. But with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, anything is possible, and it starts with you, and it starts with me. Who is one person or group of people God is inviting you to see as neighbors today? Maybe you walked in and you didn't think of them as the neighbors of the great commandments, the greatest commandments. And today you can walk out thinking, these are the people that God's inviting me to love. Do we have the courage to say to the Holy Spirit, let it begin with me? Soften my heart. Correct me with your love so I can see where I need to be transformed. Because as Jesus followers, we have the opportunity to be peacemakers and bridge builders in a world full of conflict and burn bridges. To be people who look at the least of these and see them as the greatest. To be people who maybe come head to head with a harsh enemy, but we still want to bring deep compassion and love just like Jesus did. And so before we go into this time of worship and communion, I, I, I want to read some of the lyrics from the last song that we're going to sing because as I was just meditating on that this week, I thought, this is a prayer. This is a prayer that I want to pray over us today. And so as we go into communion, we're going to sing a song, and then there's another song we're going to sing. And here's some of the words from it. I'll put them on the screen as I pray it over us. In the midst of so much division and brokenness, I just pray that the Holy Spirit would hear this prayer. God, would you make us a vessel of your peace? Where there is war, let fighting cease. All that divides us, come reconcile us. Make us a vessel of your peace. 
Make us a vessel of your love. Where there is hatred, break it up. All creeds and colors, bind us together. Make us a vessel of your love. Amen.